0: Good morning. Good to see each of you this morning. And it was needed to hear us sing about the gospel in every single song selection this morning. Just a reminder of God's goodness, that the grave has no hold on us. And sometimes even when we let chains come back and sort of refasten us and retether us, God is good and delivers and gives hope. If you're our guest this morning, I want to personally welcome you. And right there in the chair in front of you, you'll see a Connect card. And we would love to have a record of your visit, uh, just who you are, how we might be able to help you. And you can just give that to someone at the end, anybody wearing one of those lanyards around their neck. Um, they won't think it odd if you give them a, that, that Connect card. Psalm 22. And this completes our summer in the Psalms series, which means, Lord willing... Uh, next summer, we'll begin with one of, the, one of the most favored psalms of all, Psalm 23. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 22. I'm going to give you the, the title right here at the beginning. A Psalm for the Abandoned, or a song for those who feel abandoned. Have you ever felt abandoned? One time, I was lost on... Uh, the Jersey Shore on the New York, or not the New York, The uh, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but the, the boardwalk in New Jersey. Yes, and, and I remember I, was, I, got, I got distracted looking at candy or toys, and I turned around, and nobody I knew was there anymore. And it is a very sinking feeling for a young man. You know, all of a sudden at that point, when you feel lost, or abandoned, or forsaken, uh, all of a sudden that toy or that piece of candy no longer holds the attraction anymore because the worst problem in your little world at that point is you are alone. Have you ever felt that way? Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever felt like God distanced himself from you? This is a song for people who feel that way. David actually puts to writing a psalm or a song of abandonment. C.S. Lewis said this, Often when I pray, I wonder if I am not posting letters to a non-existent address. How do you respond when God seems distant? Look at the first verse of this. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. It is a wearying thing to be abandoned by God, or to have the sense of abandonment by God, or we would say the seeming abandonment by God And the problem is we so often or so quickly attribute this to Jesus Christ saying in Aramaic on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is so etched in our minds that we fail to make the application that Psalm 22 does. And that is, this is a common experience among humanity. To be in the greatest need, to be even confronted by enemies, and worse, to feel like you've been abandoned by the one you trusted in. God, why have you forsaken me? Now go back up to the title. Interesting title. Uh, Different translations will interpret it differently, and that's because uh, this title, uh, there is some enigma to it. There is some translation difficulty to it. Uh, The titles, by the way, were added later. They're not inspired like the psalm. Uh, But this title, look at it, in in the English Standard Version, it says, to the choir master, okay, so it's intended to be sung, According to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. Other translations have Hind of the Morning, kind of a funny, funny description, or Hind of the Dawn, or Hind of the Doe, which, which to me is my favorite, right? And, and it could either be, this strange title, could either be some piece of morning music, a melody, or liturgy in that day, and it was supposed to be played to this tune maybe an animal finding a peaceful watering hole in the morning but disrupted and what what part of the dough do you see when it when it is in fear and in danger it's hind right and it goes so play it to that tune you know we don't have any of those tunes here Uh, we do have a key called the highlands key It's what the congregation sings it best in not what soloists or performers sing best in We try to match congregational singing to the best key. We have a highlands key, but we do not have hind of the doe. But this one is to that. It could also be an expression that indicates the content which follows. There was peace, then there was danger, and I ran. Possibly. Alternatively, the expression may designate the name of the tune. Again, hind of the doe tune, a tempo that captures the mood. So what mood is going to be captured? Let's look at that. Here's the first section, verses 1 to 21. The theme of the abandoned. David introduces us to harsh reality number one, forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Three times he's going to say this. Look at verse 2 then. Oh my God, I cry. Threefold pleading with God by name which presupposes a relationship. It assumes the fact that God should be close rather than far. It assumes that I'm your child. There is a covenant relationship, God, that you have agreed to enter into. And we do see that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 22, with the Abrahamic covenant and all the generations after you, Abraham, will be blessed. David is appealing to that and he's saying, my God, covenant God, Why are you so far away? Here's what I want us as a church to understand. It is not sinful to ask God why. It's not sinful. Jesus asked why, didn't He? On the cross. And Jesus is without sin. So there is a careful, reverent questioning of why. But now, if you start to... Accuse God of wrongdoing within that why. If you start to act as though you would be a much better God running this world than he is, now you have crossed into the border of sinning. But it's not wrong initially to say, God, why? Do you know it's also not sinful to sense God's distance? It's not wrong to say that not wrong for us. Rather than put on the artificiality of, oh, I'm always so close to God and it's always so perfect. We have to sometimes with one another, as brothers and sisters say, you know, I'm going through a season right now where it almost feels like God has forsaken me. And he's doing that with a child. This is David. He is doing that with a true son, Jesus on the cross. OK, so let's be very clear as we try to in nurture a culture of transparency and vulnerability and honesty, that we don't need to fake it in front of each other. It doesn't help. God, why are you so far away? God, why don't you hear my prayers? I cry to you by day, there's no response. And I cry to you at night, and there's no rest. This can be a very spiritual experience that is being put forward in Psalm 22. Look at verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. We're going to call this the mystery of divine silence. And I want to say this. This is more painful than anything else in the world that you will experience. It exacerbates all the other troubles you may face, but you're going to see that this is the primary pain. David is not in a good place in this psalm. David is physically unhealthy. David is in danger but his primary problem that is, that is hurting his heart is the mystery of divine silence. Look at verse 3. In the midst of this pain, in the midst of this struggle, look at what he reminds himself of. Yet, verse 3, Okay, this is a true suffering. And sometimes our worst sufferings are the invisible ones that nobody else can see, because if you can't see it, people don't step in to help. And if you can't see my suffering... I'm going to be less inclined to talk about my suffering. So there's this theological suffering of divine distance. So David reminds his own heart. Look at verse three. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried and were rescued in you. They trusted and they were not put to shame. After David puts forward the unseen struggle of his most intense suffering of being forsaken by God, he identifies a memory. He calls himself back to those truths. See, and this is is how we need to handle Psalm 22. Rather than it just becoming a cross-reference, a prophetical cross-reference to Mark and Matthew's account of the crucifixion, This is provided for us, yes, for that reason, but also so that we can enter into the same theological agony. Why is God silent? Yesterday I watched a reporter give an update from the Abaco Islands in the Bahamas. He actually had uh, his cameraman pan around about a 180 just to let us know as the, the viewers that it wasn't a particular angle that was chosen to show the most decimated area on that island. And as they panned, you could see how, how Dorian's 185 sustained winds as a Category 5 has destroyed the Abaco Islands. What I appreciated about this particular reporter uh, is he was an older gentleman. He had already been in Rwanda and in a war scene in Afghanistan, and he said it looks like a war zone or a genocide happened. You can see limbs sticking out of the mud, and you can smell the stench of death. You know, if you research, we try to comfort ourselves. Well, maybe they were practicing paganism or some kind of voodoo. And you get on and you find out that 90% of that island, the Abaco Island, is professing Protestant believer. It's a broader, broader umbrella, but at least, I mean, these, these are not like hostile pagans. These are people who are at least God-fearers in some measure. Why does God allow that hurricane to decimate those people? David identifies the source of his suffering, the darkest mystery of his suffering, and that is the sense that God seems distant and at times in his distant allows recklessness. We've got to call each other back to this. First, God is holy. That is the stable, first stabilizing truth that David recalls. And, and by the way, holy means a lot more than just without sin. Of course, God is without sin. But God was holy even before sin entered in Genesis chapter 3. Or even before Satan rebelled and was cast out of heaven. God was still holy among all his other creations. Holiness does mean without sin, but it means this. Here's what David is doing when he's crying out to God and saying, Why are you so distant? Why have you abandoned me? He's saying God is holy. He is separate. He's distinct. He is above all else. He is unique. One of a kind. Even with other sinless beings like the angels, God is holy. Why? And how can that be a comfort to us? Because God is unique and he has revealed to us his character, we can actually cry out and say, God, you are holy. I don't know why you've allowed this pain or this suffering or your own experiential distance from me, but you are unique and one of a kind and you are not asking for my preferences. You're not asking for my opinion on how to run the world and this holiness if you see this even the angels in isaiah i mean the ones with the six wings you've never seen a creature like that and and with two they cover their face and two they cover their feet and with two wings right they fly and they sing what motivated that god's holiness his uniqueness you know one of the best things we can do with one another when we are suffering and we feel distanced or left alone, is to remind one another of God's holiness. God is holy. Look what he says. Look at the second stabilizing truth. God is enthroned. God is sovereign. He's a king. He's a ruler. What do you do with a a holy king? You bow down. You submit. You align your desires with His. You follow, you obey, at least we should. I love what David then does. In you our fathers trusted, and you delivered. To you they cried, and you rescued. I was thinking about an application to us as parents this morning. Or to us as grandparents. I'm not a grandparent yet, but you as grandparents. What example are you living and leaving right now For your children and grandchildren, when they go through a seeming distance by God, an abandonment by God, for them to turn back and say, Mom and Dad trusted in you and you delivered them. Grandma and Grandpa, or whatever you call them, trusted and called out to you and you rescued them. Do you know sometimes it's your testimony that is going to help them navigate the storms of seeming abandonment by God? What you're doing right now, what you're saying right now, the choices you are making now, what you talk about in the car when you're alone with them now, the example of values and consistency and faithfulness. As David continues in this theme of abandonment, look at what he says in verse six. But I am a worm. How would you interpret that? There's an older hymn that talks about us being worms in the sense of us. Us being nothing in the light of God's holiness and sovereignty, but I don't think that's what David's getting to here. It sounds like a confession of humility, and it may be included in that, but it seems rather to imply a state of decomposition and unpleasantness, and by implication, the nearness of death itself. That's that's what worms do. Matter of fact, in Isaiah fourteen eleven, listen, uh, we know about, about this, this ruler that some have have uh, identified. With Satan, but it's a human ruler, and it says, Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, right? The grave. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. That is very colorful language to say that there was once a time when everybody thought you were majestic and you were awesome. And you were calling the shots and now you're laying in a bed of death. And nobody is impressed by you anymore and nobody's impressed by the sound of your instruments and nobody's impressed by the sound of your rule because maggots are a bed beneath you and worms are your cover. So when David says, I am a worm, he's actually dying. He feels this in his body physically. And so here you have this, this, what hope is there when we are confronted by death? What hope is there when our bodies begin to decay? What hope, and every time you go to the doctor and it's something else and something more and something they're not sure of and they have to run more tests and your body is actually in some way decomposing? He says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. See, after the primary problem is communicated, God's distance. He moves to identify the second problem, which is only secondary to the abandonment of God. And that is the dehumanizing effect of attacks of other people. Look at verse seven. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Do you know there is pain in God's silence and people's non-silence? If only God would speak and people would close their mouths. God, why are you so far away? Mm-hmm, see? Call out to Him. He's not hearing you. Trust in Him. Where is He? Look at you. You're decaying. You're decomposing. Ha <laughs> ha. They wag their heads, they point their fingers, they make mouths. The pain of the distance between you and God is only made worse by the very closeness of people who want to see your downfall. You ever had that experience? David has. And you know who else has? Jesus has. That's why some of these wagging of the heads, that's why it sounds familiar. Matthew records that. Mark records that. When God seems distant, it enlarges the secondary problem, and that's people. In the midst of this two-edged struggle, he reminds himself of God's work. Look at verse 9. Right? So God is distant. People are attacking me. They're waiting for my demise. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Probably an allusion back again to the Abrahamic Covenant and that David is God's people. You see what's going on here? You see the struggle and then the prayer and then the struggle and the reality and then a reminder of truths, a struggle, a truth about God, a struggle, a truth about God, relational distance, relational closeness. That's exactly what God's doing through your trouble. That's exactly what he wants to accomplish in your suffering. He wants you to draw near to him so he can draw near to you. That's what James 4.8 says. David is saying that God protected him from birth. God provided for him. God is his creator. There's complete dependence, complete sustenance and protection in God. It makes no sense that now that God seems so far away. You know, in our own struggles with being abandoned by God experientially, It helps us to understand more and more why Jesus came to the earth. Jesus experienced the very things communicated in this psalm. In verse 7 of Psalm 22, they wag their heads. As Chris read for us this morning, it says this in Mark 15, and those who passed by, of course, Jesus hanging, crucified, on the public road, most likely naked. That's what crucifixion did. It deliberately... It heightened the shame and the pain. Emotional suffering and physical suffering. That's what crucifixion did. Now add to that. They derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In verse 22, 8, it says, let the Lord deliver him. Do You know, that's what they said to Jesus. He trusts in God, Matthew 27, verse 43. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. You know that often our feelings of being abandoned by God mean a sense of being abandoned by someone else too in a difficult situation. That's David's experience. That was Jesus' experience. So he cries out. As was read for us in Mark 15, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what we learn? The Father didn't forsake Jesus because of his own sinful choices. There was a forsaking because Jesus took whose sin upon himself? Us. So here's the good news. In this first section, the song of the abandoned, the good news is Christ was forsaken by the Father, so you ultimately do not have to be. In Christ, you are brought near. In Christ, you are received. In Christ, there is closeness. What a mystery. The sinless one is forsaken by the Holy One. And because Christ was forsaken, we never have to be ultimately forsaken by God. So look at the prayer. I want you to notice the prayer in verse 11. So you have the, 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 the first, okay, this, this, this song of the abandoned, but notice the specific request. It's not physical healing, nor, not first, it's not physical healing, and it's not deliverance from his enemies. The deepest care for David is the removal of divine distance. Look at this. Look at verse 11. In that kind of a situation, here's the prayer. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So let me ask you this morning. Do you feel divine distance then pray this god be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help this is what david wants most He wants the closeness of God restored. That's his nearest desire. This is what Christ missed. He had never experienced that distance before. And so Jesus cries out, Why? Why have you forsaken me? He has never known that distance between him and the Father before. So why did he experience? Because you who were born into distance could be brought close to him. Do you know that sickness and death can be faced in the presence of God? But what good is life and health if God isn't close? Matter of fact, David's going to capture this in the next psalm that we'll look at next year. But notice what he says in Psalm 23, verse four, if you have your Bibles open, just go to Psalm 23. Here he's praying, God, be near to me. Why have you forsaken me? Be near to me. And he says this in Psalm 23, verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? Why? You are with me. You are close to me. You've not forsaken me. There's an intimate relationship here as a father and a child. And then he goes, you're rotting your staff. They comfort me. So look at the second harsh reality. Let's look at verse 12. Because when God is silent, here's the danger. And the danger is bitterness can creep in and like a root spring up and defile many people. Verse 12, he's going to use these metaphors to talk about these opponents in animal-like terms. And do you know that opponents can become annoyingly large when God seems absent? We start talking about them. We start meditating on them. We start fixating on their irritations on us. We start undermining undermine them. This is a very common experience. David is not going to blush and and not call their behavior out. Look at what he does. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Those were large, well-fed bulls. Micah refers to the animals of Bashan. And in Deuteronomy, Moses will refer to the animals of Bashan. This This is a fertile area where these are healthy, strong animals. This is what David's enemies seem like to him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. What effect do David's opponents have on him, have on his spirit? Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Okay, We're, just gonna, we're not going to look at those statements individually. All David is saying is this. I hardly have enough strength to stand up, let alone go on. I'm done. God's far away. The enemies are close. And their beast-like behavior is undoing my soul. I'm finished. That's the cry. That's what's being captured here in Psalm 22. He says this in verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. And what makes it worse is while he's dying, they're staring at him and gloating over his suffering. Verse 17. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Have you ever had somebody just kind of waiting for you to fail, waiting for you to trip up. Yes, they will wait for years until they can finally say, ha, 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 yes. It's a painful experience. It is beast-like behavior. Verse 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They're like trampling bulls, hungry devouring lions, And they devour like opportunistic dogs. They don't even care about you. They just want your belongings. If they can do it on social media or they can do it in person, they will attack you. They don't care about you. This is David's experience, because when God seems distant, people seem huge and problems seem tenacious. It's a picture of powerlessness, desperation. And above all, the mouth of the grave is pulling him in. Did you see that? In the dust of death. It's almost like death is welcoming him. The mouth of the grave is opening and the animals are chasing him into the mouth of the grave. Mark fifteen twenty-five. it says this of Jesus. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. They had no idea they were in the shadow of the Son of God being killed. They had no idea they were sitting there causing the death of the One who gives the world the only hope of life. The mocking, the punches, the flogging, the spitting on His face, the jeers, the nails in His hands and in His feet, the crown of thorns. Beastly behavior that represents our behavior. I love what Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet... Without sin. He faced his enemies without sinning against them. He faced the distance of God without sinning. Without accusing. Simply crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? Again, like before, the desperate situation causes the psalmist to pray. Look at verse 19. And again, I want you to notice a second time how he begins his prayer. But you, O Lord, what? Do not be far off from me. I can endure anything with you. I don't even want to endure a good life and health without you. Once again, he prays for the removal of divine distance. See, God, not primarily his enemies, is the main problem. And I don't mean that by laying a charge against God, but his greatest, the greatest conflict in his heart is the seeming distance of God, not the closeness of his enemies. But then he does move and look how the prayer develops. Look at the second part of verse 19. "O oh, you, my help come quickly to my aid. And once again, he refers to the beastly nature of those who oppose him and ask for deliverance. Look at verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. He sort of he inverts the order of these beasts sort of poetically and he's highlighting this is a very real danger. Now, somewhere, and I I want you to look at this, you've got to look at the text, because the mood changes like this. Somewhere in the middle of verse 21, God responded in a saving way. Somewhere in the it's not recorded, so some, some commentators call it an oracle, a response to an oracle. God stepped in and rescued. We don't know the exact historical situation where David is writing this from, but God stepped in, and I want you to see the response to divine action. So look at the first part of twenty one. Okay, are you there? Save me from the mouth of the lion. Now, there's a, a historical episode, maybe three or four episodes right inside. And then look at what he says. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What just happened? You ever wonder, like C.S. Lewis, that you're posting letters to an unknown address? Seem like all your correspondence is rejected, right? I love those. You know, the the email address you typed in is not correct. That's the only that's the only one I have. I have no other email address for this person, right? Rejected. I have no one else to go to but God. But what when those? What happens when it's rejected? That's the experience, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To who else shall I go? Who else can save? Our fathers cried to you and you rescued them. Our ancestors cried out and played it and you saved them. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Historical contents, life like this, Sunday, Sunday morning, real people, real problems, troubles, questions. And there's somewhere down this timeline, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That is hope. That's what happens when we are rescued, not just rescued in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. Yes, then primarily then, but also in the hurts of his own people here this morning where God seems so distant. You know, you never forget a rescue. I'll never forget on the Salt Lake Lake City. I'm still not getting this boardwalk when my mom turned back around the corner. You don't forget a rescue. You know what the people, this is very sad, the people on the Abaco Islands, this was the slowest moving and strongest hurricane to ever hit the Bahamas since they had been keeping record of hurricanes. It was so devastating, they say they will probably have to retire the name Dorian. And while this storm barely moved and sustained those winds, the people on the Abaco Islands said, we thought nobody was going to come and rescue us. At the same time, family and friends are dead. They're crying out. You know, you never forget a rescue. If you ever started to drown and you were done, you were going under. It was the last and you went under. You never forget the person who pulled you up. You'll never forget that in your whole life. That's what's happening here. A rescue happened. The feelings of abandonment for David have been replaced by care and love. This is real, experiential, and personal. I want, to, I want you to see what then this creates. Look at verse 25. Because we're going to move through the, the rest of this portion. It's really simple. Somebody who's rescued now has hope restored. Oh, God wasn't far off. He is holy. He's enthroned. Jesus wasn't forsaken. That had to happen so you could be brought near. Look at verse 22. I will tell... Thank, this is thanksgiving declared by the sufferer. I will tell of your name to my brother's. Do you right, Do we talk about God like that or just sort of hollow theological concepts and systems? I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. See, he just turned one of our questions and answered it. He has not despised or bored the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. See, he wasn't distant. He wasn't forsaken. You have not hidden your face from me, but has heard when he cried to him. And then finally, look at the address to the congregation. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear. And that's probably the, three, the free will offerings that, that David is going to continue to give that help alleviate the suffering of the poor. Do you know sufferers who have been rescued are the best people to rescue other sufferers? So David is going to continue to give these, these free will offerings to alleviate the affliction of those who are suffering. I will perform before those who fear him. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. From what? From David's response to this holy God. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. This, this should be very instructive for us. What David has done, and I, and I want you to hear this, is when he, when he cries out through the seeming distance and is brought near. He goes to the congregation. He doesn't go out to his favorite spots in the wilderness and worships God alone. There's a time and a place for that. What David is valuing is the congregational gathering. It is there we're going to profess these truths. It is there we're going to provide a a testimony as a group. It is there we're going to praise him and glorify him and stand in awe of him. And do you know something that important will always be challenged by other lesser values in life? Than the coming together and the praising and the singing and the serving in the congregation. Now, notice the result of a God designed gathering. It produces thanksgiving in others. See, this is what you rob others of by staying away. Look at verse 27. Because now you have not just thanksgiving declared by the sufferer, but thanksgiving declared by the congregation. And we'll end with this. All the ends of the earth, verse 27, shall remember and turn to the Lord. No. His focus does this self. Why have you forsaken me from self to saying it among the congregation to the nations? That's the progression that God desires in suffering. God, why have you forsaken me? I will sing of your rescue to the congregation. And now he says all the ends of the earth. His focus is towards the nations shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Verse twenty eight. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations and the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. There's hope beyond death. There's hope beyond the grave. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Do you know, that's what's happening right now. We're we're, we're proclaiming the fact that God has done it. God has rescued to people who were not born when Psalm 22 was written. And when Psalm 22 was sung in the congregation and we're declaring his glory among the nations. Verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It sort of sounds like this in John 1930, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He has done it. He has accomplished it. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. God has come near to us in Christ. Jesus fully entered our human condition without sin to suffer. He suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. He suffered the very distance between him and the Father so that the rest of humanity could enjoy closeness with him. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I'm going to invite the music team forward and I'm going to read a passage out of first Peter chapter two. Christ was forsaken, so we don't have to. But secondly, Christ's suffering also provides an example. I want you to hear what Peter says. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you know you can pray this? this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and then turn and receive rescue from him for salvation. You can also pray this for difficulty as his child in time of need. Listen to what Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're going to take a little more time in responding through two different hymns this morning. The first one really is this experiential suffering of the distance of God. And it is a cry, Lord, I need you. The second one is a reminder of ultimately Christ entering into the sufferings, the very normal human sufferings of humanity in Psalm 22, and a reminder of the power of the cross. So I want you to pray these and praise God through these and see how the text actually aligns with Psalm 22. So please stand. I'm going to pray.